Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Today I'll be looking at a little bit more of the Jesuits in North America in the 17th century by Francis Parkman Jr. This is the second volume of his France and England in North America. And this uh, book, this volume, this uh, 350-400 page book, looks at the the history of the the most heroic, the the peak of the Jesuit influence and the Jesuit um, activities in Canada, especially uh, culminating and, and really focusing on uh, the Huron mission. So in the past episode, I talked a little bit about his introduction to the book, which summarizes the life, the worldview, the perspective, the politics of the various native tribes that the Jesu- French Jesuits were involved with, like the Huron, the Iroquois, uh, some of the other groups, uh, but mostly the Huron. The Huron are really the focus of this. Uh, then I looked at uh, the founding of the Jesuit mission uh, under the leadership of Lejeune, and later on the arrival of uh, Brebeuf, the, the major, two of the three major Jesuit figures in this, in this history, and ultimately the founding of the, the permanent, at least the semi-permanent, Jesuit mission among the Huron. Uh, in this episode, I'll look at, it'll be actually chapters 8 through 20, yeah, 8 through 20. It's a little bit more than 100 pages, but I'm just kind of rounding it up. Um, this will focus on the fall of that first Jesuit mission, basically due to persecution and violence by the Huron in the context of a, of a smallpox epidemic. And then uh, after that, Parkman talks about some of the other missions some of the other Jesuit activities in Canada, such as the activity of the sisters, the Ursuline sisters, not, not Jesuits, of course, but tied to the religious missions. Uh, the mission up in, um, in the north, it's Sanse, uh, Sanse Marie, um, the activities of the Jesuits back in Quebec and Montreal. And then the founding under Isaac Gouge, J-O-G-U-E-S is how his name is spelt. Uh, of, a, of another Huron mission. And this is going to, of course, culminate in the martyrdom in, in uh, around 1650, the martyrdom of, of the major, of these Jesuit leaders, uh, many of who became, you know, saints later on as a, as a part of their, as a, as a, I guess, a, as a wage for their sacrifice and their heroism. Um, now, Parkman is really in awe of what the Jesuits achieved, what they had what they accomplished, their their influence, their and their bravery and their zeal. I think that's really the focus of this whole book is the zeal and the will of the Jesuits, driven by this religious determination to establish a, a permanent presence for Christ and for the Jesuits in, in North America. It it almost in, in some ways because it ends so catastrophically for the Jesuits, uh, when the Iroquois expand and, and conquer uh, essentially the Hurons, uh, where the Jesuit mission was, it sort of becomes almost a si- like a failed side quest 
kind of like the Huguenot story. But unlike the Huguenots, who are maybe, for Parkman, in Parkman's mind, an alternative, a possible alternative that didn't go anywhere, the Jesuits in North America do have a, a continuing influence in New France, but that will eventually be replaced by the, you know, the landowners, the merchant class, and the, and the military and the state. And, and that's kind of the story of the third book in the series, La Salle and the, and the Great West. Although that's mostly about the discovery of, of like Wisconsin, the Mississippi, and you know eventually the, the, the establishment of French claims in those regions. Uh, it also tells the story of the conflict between those more secular forces and the religious forces in New France and the, the advantage given by the decline of the Jesuits in establishing that a more secular power. Um, so, uh, but, you know, this is still my favorite volume. I, I think this volume in this whole series, I mean, the favorite volume in the series, uh, just because of the, the epic nature of, of the Jesuit mission. I, I really do love reading about it. And I, and I love the cross-cultural stuff, the, 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 the fact that these missions were contact zones between cultures. And if you read the Jesuit relations, as I, as I have read selections of pro previously, so uh, you know, I've, I've kind of been exposed to some of the same sources Parkman has been reading to understand this, you know, it's some of the most interesting stuff there is how the Jesuits observed, like uh, here on family life or here on farming or or their culture and their religious traditions and their health care and all that stuff. And, you know, although the Jesuits are profoundly unscientific in their approach, uh, especially in how they deal with disease and things like that, you can kind of uh, squint and say, wow, there's a lot of objectivity here. And it does make the Jesuit relations useful sources, if not infallible sources. Parkman thinks they're basically unimpeachable sources, that they just do their, do their job, but of, of objectively more or less telling the history. And I don't think Parkman's as, as critical of them as perhaps he should be. He doesn't kind of do that level of analysis beyond what the sources say to kind of get at the ideology of the Jesuits in any systematic way, although I think he's aware to some degree. Uh, you know, that that's for later historians to dig up. But, you know, Parkman's interested in this story and the narrative of, of the Jesuits here, and he does a really, really good job of, of unveiling it. And I, you know, I really, really like this book. So as we left off last time, we saw the founding of the permanent Jesuit mission and uh, the, the, the arrival of Brebeuf. Um, and the founding of the mission and their their conversion efforts, but it's in the midst of a smallpox epidemic that's beginning to break out, and so we see one of the the Jesuits respond to uh, a native kind of form of healthcare called the Dream Feast, where people would basically um, expel the demons through kind of a bacchanalia kind of celebration. It's kind of interesting idea. Um, Think about the history of disease and and healthcare. It's almost kind of idea that the diseases are psychological and and almost like a spirit possession. And of course, the Jesuits don't really accept that, but uh, they what they are really interested in is the Feast of the Dead, because the Feast of the Dead seems to seems to suggest this respect among the Huron for the dead and their souls and all that. So um, it's just an amazing description. I love chapter seven in this book, uh, and I just think the Feast of the Dead is so wild and, uh, you know, just different ways of different cultures dealing with the dead is kind of a you know kind of an intriguing thing to explore it'd be an interesting book if someone put it together like a coffee table book of funeral practices in different cultures 
and yeah, across time be kind of fun to to put all those together and this is just a really really unique one where people brought all their dead bodies from all the different villages to one common burial site a lot of fun there um so as we move on uh we we kind of jump right into the the jesuits and the huron dealing with this this disease and chapter eight is called the huron and the jesuit and it is a it is about the interaction between these two but largely in terms of of the disease and you see a couple things happening one of course you have indigenous native medical care approaches to trying to solve um, this plague you also have the jesuit response which is it's fairly cynical i i think and i think it's one of the more ugly aspects of the of the jesuits here not that the jesuits had health care that would have saved many any lives it's not like there was much they could do um you know smallpox hit all the native american peoples they didn't have the natural immunities for you know their zoonotic diseases smallpox so indians didn't have didn't raise domesticated animals so they didn't have the natural kind of herd immunity to these epidemic diseases like influenza and smallpox so it just of course ran through these populations and, and devastated them um, but this failure of the jesuits who kind of come not as wizards they wouldn't say they're wizards but from kind of the huron point of view they're making claims about the afterlife they're making claims about eternal life about salvation and of being from a superior civilization uh, that knows more and so therefore their failure to do anything about the smallpox epidemic their failure to solve this problem of course leads and, then, and that happened it happens about the time they arrive leads to the rather rational conclusion that there are somehow they are somehow the cause of this epidemic um so um and it's not that the priests let these people just die it's at the same just really they really couldn't do anything but what they could do in their view is care for the souls of the of the young of the dying and ensure for them an afterlife and yeah it's kind of cynical because their goal is to acquire as many souls as possible and converts for for the jesuits for the jesuit order but it it does have that it does strike us in the modern day i think it's, it's a rather cynical and approach kind of filled with a lot of ennui with it but i'm sure the jesuits believe that they were doing the best thing um, parkman writes about this it was clear to the fathers that their administrations were valued solely because the religion was supposed by many to be a medicine or charm efficacious against famine disease and death they saw themselves indeed firmly believed that saints and angels were always on hand with temporal suckers for the faithful at their intercession saint joseph had interposed to procure a happy delivery to a squaw in protracted pains of childbirth they never doubted that in the hour of need the celestial powers would confound the unbeliever with intervention direct and manifest at the town of Wenrio, the people after trying in vain all the feasts dances and preposterous ceremonies by which their medicine men sought to stop the pest resolved to essay the medicine of the french and to that end called the priest to the council what must we do that your god may take pity on us brief answer was uncompromising believe in him keep his commandments abjure your faith and dreams take but one wife and be true to her give up your superstitious feasts renounce your assemblies of debauchery eat no human flesh never give your feasts to demons and make vow that if god will deliver you from this pest you'll build a chapel to offer him thanksgiving and praise the terms were too hard they would fain bargain to be 
let out of the building of the chapel alone, but Brebeuf would bait them nothing, and the council broke up in despair. So there's simply a culture clash here. Um, basically, they're desperate, they're dying, and the Jesuit response is, well, if you convert, you know, then God will help you. <laughs> Not, we won't, we can't, right? I think in the Jesuit relations, you do read about some efforts of the Jesuits to cure some, but involve like, what, 17th century medicine, which was pretty bad. So it's like bleeding, balancing the humors and nonsense like that. By the way, if you're interested, uh, you know, read the health, the health history, the medical history of, of like Louis the 14th, King of France. Um, I think there's a whole Wikipedia entry on it. He had all sorts of health problems and he was kept alive. He had lived a very long life, obviously. And he was king until well into the 18th century, despite being born in 1640s, 1630s lived a very long life, but he had all sorts of health problems. He had um, some really gross stuff. And uh, yeah, check it out and you'll be shocked. But it, you're just, it's just a reminder that, you know, healthcare in France wasn't that good. Um, and there wasn't much the Jesuits could do about smallpox hitting. Um, now, not all Indians, not all Huron, I should say, believe that the cause were the Jesuits. There was a mixture of, of of reasons, but they they largely stick to their traditional practices. Uh, quote opinion was divided as to the nature of the pest, but the greater number were agreed that it was a malignant oki, it's like a god, uh, who came from Lake Huron, as it was at the last moments to consile or frighten him. No means to these ends were neglected. Feasts were held for him, to which to do him honor. Each guest gorged himself like a vulture. A mysterious fraternity danced with firebrands in their mouths, while other dancers wore masks and pretended to be hunchbacked. Tobacco was burned to the demon of the pest, no less than to the scarecrows that were to frighten him. A chief climbed to the roof of the house and shouted to the invisible monster, If you want flesh, go to where our enemies, go to the Iroquois. While to add terror to persuasion, the crowd in the dwelling below yelled with all the force of their lungs and beat furiously with sticks on the walls of bark. Um, yeah, so uh, this is a prime condition this is setting up a a culture clash you know in the midst of a conflict right and you know we see this all the time you know diseases get blamed on others constantly or you know we can review susan sontag's illnesses metaphor aids in its metaphors for a reminder of how much our cultures interpret diseases in non-scientific non-medical ways we we simply have a tendency to do this, whether it was the response to HIV AIDS, blaming a subculture, blaming, um, you know, drug addicts or, or gay men for a lifestyle, blaming the sexual revolution, blaming the 60s uh, or cancer, blaming it as like repression, tuberculosis being blamed on romanticism and kind of the romantic, uh, ex, ex, you know, exaltation. Susan Sante talked about all this and we ought, you know, and even now with the COVID-19 virus, that's epidemic still going on when I'm recording this, you know, that, that gets, you know, that's blamed on the Chinese or, you know, people in Wuhan within China getting blamed and being subject to special observation and persecution. Diseases just have that tendency because it is something that we have no control over uh, or very little control over if we get sick and it's not our fault we get sick usually. Um, but it's easier than to find a moral solution 
to diseases rather than a purely medical one. It's easier for us culturally as, as human beings who want to be secure. So if you blame, you say, oh, they got, they got HIV because they were uh, degenerate or sinful or something. It's just, it's comforting. And so we're not surprised when we read about a culture clash emerging in the context of a disease. Now, had the Jesuits come sometime after smallpox epidemic, had there not been the smallpox threat, had there not been the Iroquois uh, attacks that would come at the climax of this story, you know, maybe this relationship would have been quite different. Um, I don't know, because they weren't conquerors. The Jesuits weren't conquerors, even if they were adjuncts of empire. Um, this is a part of the story that I don't think Parkman says too much about in this particular volume, but it's something we can think about looking at this, this history. Um, so yeah, chapter eight is a really good one too. Chapter nine is called The Character of the Canadian Jesuits. And this kind of goes over the big names, Jean de Brebeuf, Charles Garnier, Joseph Marie Chambeau, Noel Chambonal, Isaac Jogues. And those are the big names. Those are the big martyrs. Um, I think they were all eventually killed um, by Indians or in the course, course, course of doing their work. Um, and what is... Parkman say about them? Well, he kind of repeats himself here, but this is a useful chapter to just, you know, because we've been talking about a lot of different people, uh, a lot of different missions, and he just says, okay, let's stop here and go through these people one at a time and to look at, think about them. And what they have in common, although they're very different personalities, what they have in common is this religious zealotry, this total commitment to the mission and to the cause of Christ in, in the Americas. And that's what Parkman thinks gives them the, really their power and their influence. Um, you know, they believed in heaven, the, heaven and hell. They believed in the afterlife. They, they were highly disciplined, highly well-trained, highly committed. And, and this zeal gives them almost superhuman capacities in Parkman's view. Now, not literally superhuman, but they were able to do things that seem pretty unlikely. I mean, they're... Even the way they faced their death is, is rather shocking to believe. And I, it seems it even impressed the, the, the murderers because the Indians, the Huron, the Iroquois, you know, put a lot of stock in, in bravery and in courage in the face of death and being tortured. And these Jesuits seem to, to face that. Uh, but we'll get into that in the next episode when we reach the climax of this story. Um, so then chapter 10, 1637 to 1640, persecution. So again, we're, we return to the problem of, of the Jesuits and the smallpox. And the Jesuits really only able to offer um, baptism. That's really all they can offer to the, to the Indians who are dying, to those who are sick. Um, so there's then an organ, like, in response to this epidemic, then, the Huron chiefs meet, they're organized, and again, we're reminded of what Parkman says about political organization among these people, that on the surface, it seems disunity, but great unity was possible through, you know, through dialogue and discourse and conferences. And at the, at this meeting, at this meeting of the Huron chiefs, which is all kind of described here, and the the Jesuits are part of this. They're, they're allowed to be part of it. Um, we are told that the Huron just decide that the Jesuits are sorcerers and villainous sorcerers, sorcerers that, that 
mean to do harm to to the Huron um, and evidenced by the fact that there was this epidemic. So it, it's again, it's another example of this of this culture clash in the context of, of a disease. And of course, this is the beginning of the persecution of the Jesuits as sorcerers. And this would continue for, for, for many, many years. Basically, to the end of the mission, you're going to have this kind of persecution. So on top of all the other challenges, on top of the, 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 these, from their perspective, wild conditions, uh, not much financial support, uh, on top of being just a handful of people, um, trying to convert people who don't have that much interest in this particular religion. On top of all of these pressures and burdens and frustrations and challenges, you add to that the fact that they, they're literally spiritual enemies of the people that are trying to convert um, by kind of legal mandate. And that just makes their life that much, that much more challenging. And eventually they are going to be martyred, so pretty much all of them. Chapter 11 is uh, priest and Pagan, and this this is about the the Indians who end up kind of living with the Jesuits, working with the Jesuits, and beginning this life towards conversion. Because not everyone was untouched by the Jesuits; they weren't. It didn't fall totally on deaf ears. So there were some Indians, men and women, children who do do take on the Jesuit mission, live there, work there and begin this process of a religious education. And this is a, just another great little chapter talking about these cultural dialogue. That's not all conflict here, that there are inroads. And these are, these are the, the achievements of the Jesuits here from their point of view. In fact, we learn like dur during this time, you have a war between the Huron and uh, I think it's the, mostly the Mohawk, but there's various other Iroquois involved at various times. I think it's mostly the Mohawk though. Um, eventually, this is going to lead to the destruction of the Huron. But, uh, you know, they win a battle at one point and they capture like a hundred Iroquois. And these are brought to the mission and given to to the mission. Uh, quote, the Huron this year had unwanted success in their war with the Iroquois and had taken at various times nearly 100 prisoners. Many of these were brought to the seat of the new mission at St. Joseph and put to death with frightful tortures, but not before several had been converted and baptized. The torture was followed in spite of the remonstrances of the priests and those cannibal feasts customary with the Huron on such occasions. End quote. It's kind of a, an odd story, right? So they're going to torture and murder these Iroquois prisoners, as is common. But, you know, some were captured, right? Of course, were brought into these communities. That's something the Iroquois did. But these, these were all tortured and, and killed. But they were brought to, they were, this was done at the mission. And the Jesuits say, don't do this. Um, and when they're unable to stop the torture and execution, all they can do is baptize and convert the, the Iroquois. So again, a rather cynical view. But it, I think it shows how limited in power the Jesuits were, that in spite of their zeal, their commitment, their various talents, of which are there are many of them, they're just sort of limited in what they can actually affect and achieve in this in this world. So now we get to a, a part of the the story where this Huron mission is is under serious threat, persecution, basically more or less shut down. It'll have to be revived um, later on with a new foundation under Isaac Gouge. But there are other Jesuit missions that Parkman needs to talk about, and I'm not going to say too much about these. Uh, 
you know, one among the, the tobacco nations. This is up farther north. Um, and this is led by Gouge and, and Garnier in, 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 in Saint-Marie. And then you have Quebec. And then in chapter 13, we're, we're sent back to Quebec. At, you know, the last time we've been in Quebec, really, in this broader story, seven-volume story, is at the end of, chap of volume one with the death of Champlain. And um, it becomes a religious center. And it's another place where the Jesuits make some gains. And Quebec really does become sort of a religious community. And Parkman's overall thesis of, of the unity of, of kind of the Pope, of Rome, and the military, and the monarchy being the driving force of New France is, is repeated here, and we're reminded of this thesis. Um, and this is going to limit the, the success of the mission, or, or of New France altogether, in attracting many people. Um, quote, the rigor of the climate repelled the immigrant. Nor were the attractions with Father Lejeune held forth, piety, freedom, and independence, of a nature to entice him across the sea. When it was remembered that this freedom consisted in subjugation to the arbitrary will of a priest and a soldier, and in the liability, should he forget to go to Mass, of being made fast to a post with a collar and chain like a dog. Aside from the fur trade with the company, the whole life of the colony was in missions, converts, religious schools, and hospitals. Here on the Rock of Quebec were the appendages useful and otherwise of an old established civilization. While as yet there were no inhabitants or immediate hope of any, there were institutions for the care of children, the sick, and the decrepit. All these were supported by a charity, in most cases precarious. The Jesuits relied chiefly on the company, who were, in terms of their patent, were obliged to maintain religious worship. Of the origin of the conflict, hospital, and seminary, I will soon have occasion to speak. So Quebec is becoming kind of a, having a fairly strong role for religion, but not an autonomous, independent one, right? And uh, that's, this is going to be something that's explored in volume three, too, with LaSalle, where you have a, you know, his, the independence of a lot of these actors is subjugated under the crown or in this case under the company which is an extension of the crown and that's going to make more autonomous social development difficult now where you're going to see it and it's something i really wish parkman would talk more about would be like the, the fur traders the people who are much more independent actors in new france the you know but there are people who weren't committed to settlement large-scale settlement themselves they they want to trade and they didn't need colonies and agricultural settlements to do that. Um, but anyways, this part of the book is really about this establishment of a broader Jesuit presence in New France, especially in, in, in Quebec. But you got this exception, which he mentions here, of, of the what he calls a small class of men whose home in the forest and their companion savage. They followed the Indians and the Romans. This is, these are the fur traders. Um, and these are people we're going to meet, have more time to meet in the next volume. Still not as much. I like more of a social history. I think in volume four we get a little bit more of, of these, these people. Uh, the old regime in Canada. Okay, then chapter 14 is called Devotees and Nuns. And this is a really uh, a, a kind of a side quest, a side story in the overall narrative of the Jesuits. Because these are obviously not Jesuits, but they're somehow you know, kind of affiliated, attached to them. And these are the, the Ursuline nuns who are very, very active. They create a, a seminary for Huron boys. Um, and the nuns end up 
you know, having their own institutional place in in Canada. And they seem to share the same zeal and courage and, and commitment as do the, the Jesuits. Um, but, you know, they, they only get one chapter here. The Jesuits get a whole book. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, Parchment's not. There are some interesting gender stuff here and there in the book. But, you know, there's certainly other historians since have taken on this task of telling the story of the, of the, the nuns of, of French Canada. Um, chapter 15, we, we get the story of the founding and, and the establishment of Montreal, also a, a religious community uh, established kind of as a religious society from its roots. Now, before it was Montreal, it was called uh, Ville-Marie. That was the fort that was originally established there. And it later, in, in 42, and it was originally a fur trading post, but it became a site of... of of religious activity as well, according to uh, Parkman, anyways. So his chapter here, chapter fifteen, is called Ville Marie de Montreal. So, we, so um, before returning to the Jesuits among the Huron and the Iroquois, we get all these little vignettes of religious activity elsewhere in New France, which of course fills in part of the story. Because let's not forget, these aren't just seven different stories that are kind of connected loosely. This Parkman's after the total history of the French in North America. And so he does take the time in a volume like this to, to, to tell these other stories. Um, and then um, what I want to end with today, in the, in the, looking at briefly the next few chapters, is Isaac Gouge. And Isaac Gouge in 1641 takes it upon him, himself to revive the Huron mission in, you know, revive the Jesuit mission among the Huron after the years of persecution after the smallpox um, uprising. So we get his background and his arrival in New France and his decision to go into, into Huron and Iroquois land and, and bring back the, the mission. And now the biggest threat, the, the bigger context of this second kind of phase of the Jesuit mission is the, the Iroquois. Right. In fact, he says it blatantly in chapter 17. Two forces are battling for mastery of Canada. On the one side, Christ, the Virgin, and the angels with their agents, the priests. On the other, the devil and his tools, the Iroquois. Such at least was the view of the case held by the full faith. Not by the Jesuit fathers alone, but by most of the colonists. Never before had the fiend put forth such rage, and in the Iroquois he found instruments of nature not uncongenial with, with their own. And it's going to be the, Je the, the, the Iroquois who lay the final blow to the to the Jesuit mission in, in North America in the context of an open war with the Huron. And that's really what chapter seven kind of sets up here is the breakout of open war between between the Huron and the Iroquois and how the Jesuits get we're in the middle of this. Um, and the, the, you know the war has a reap has has a has a period of peace in 1644 1645 but that peace is in broken and in, and this is described in chapter 20 and it culminates this this section of the book you know it, it ends with the description of the the murder of of Gouge by by the Iroquois um, but basically he was smashed in the back of the head with a tomahawk um, and that 
and that's where the section ends. Yeah. But war is going to continue, and this war is going to destroy the Huron eventually. And so that story, and the story of the martyrdom of the the doom of the Huron mission and the and the martyrdom of the remaining Jesuits is going to be the story I'm going to pick up in the in the next episode where I look at the the final part of of the Jesuits in North North America. So again, I like this book uh, as I, I remember it as my favorite, and of the two I've, I've reread, it, it's it's my favorite of the two. Um, but we'll see. I might change my opinion when I go back through the rest of the books. So. Um, that's going to be it for now. Um, really, this this part of the story talks about the uh, the persecute the beginning of the persecution of the Jesuits, the culture clash around smallpox, and then how the Iroquois, the Beaver Wars, uh, as they're sometimes called, threatened again the the Jesuit missions after their brief revival by by Isaac Gouge. Um, and yeah, that's it. So uh, and also we get the story of the founding of Montreal and the the, the sisters and, and some of these other side stories involving um, these missionaries. All right, so that's going to be it for now. Um, if you have any of your own thoughts about the Jesuits in North America, let me know. Uh, leave a comment, send me an email, 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but that's going to be it for now. I will. We'll see you next time when I finish up my thoughts on the Jesuits in North America. Jésus est né, Jésus